Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 46, where we're traveling back to 1988 and the 42nd winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, William Bolcombe, for 12 new etudes. So Dave... I always got to start. What's your experience with William Bolcom? Well, I have a, a younger version and then a contemporary version of my experiences with oh William Bolcom. 12-year-old Dave uh, Thurmeyer into <laughs> Bill Bolcom's rags. What's going on here? Oh, if only, if only. No, when I was an undergraduate composition major, uh, he was William Bolcom's name was one of those hmm. prominent names right. that you'd hear because he was very affiliated with University of Michigan and being a fellow Big Ten school with a great composition program, you'd hear about Bolcom and Albright. They were mm-hmm. kind of the two big Michigan composers. Uh, so th- that was kind of the first time I heard about him. And then I remember some pianists playing the rags, as you of mentioned, because yeah. they're, ex- they're perennial favorites on concerts. And also, when I took an American music class, might have been, was either with, must have been with Larry Gushy mm. at the University of Illinois. Uh, I remember a, an album of Stephen Foster, a record from the music library mm-hmm. that I checked out, and it was by uh, performed by William Bolcom on piano and Joan Morris, who I didn't know at the time, but now we know it was mm-hmm. is his wife, and so they were performing on that. So that was kind of the I was like, oh, this guy's also a pianist and a composer that's interesting and so then fast forward to more recently and we're ha- we happen to be recording on the 149th birthday of former winner charles e ives and prizes are for boys yes that's right that's right <laughs> and nowadays i serve on the charles ives society board with william bolcom who is a longtime member and has expressed lots of love for ives's music in his past so uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, you know, full circle here, yeah. seeing him as an adult. And we'll tell tell you about something cool at the end of the program uh, that made us even more in touch with him. Yeah. So how about you? What was your experience with Bolcom? Uh, I guess I also have a young story, another undergraduate story, in that I was a young undergraduate pianist playing Bill Bolcom's rags. Yep. Uh, the so Graceful Ghost. The Graceful Ghost, yeah. absolutely. That's what everyone plays. Everyone, yeah. uh, so when I went to write my honors thesis which I brought in <gasps> my hardback copy oh, of my honors thesis as an undergraduate. Uh, it was a, a look at changes in American piano literature. Hmm. And the last piece I looked at was 12 New Etudes. How appropriate. How it's appropriate. like we knew, you knew that it was going to be uh, I years just knew later. that <laughs> decades later, <laughs> I'd be sitting in <laughs> podcast studio <laughs> recording about the 12 New Etudes, and I was getting ready. My 23-year-old self knew yeah. what was going to come. Um, yeah, and so then when I uh, began teaching, of course, teaching modern American music, I can't help but teach William Bolcom. So I always, in fact, just today, maybe Ives' 149th birthday, but this morning in my class, I taught about the songs of innocence and experience. So so many worlds colliding today. Worlds colliding today talking about William Bolcom. So maybe we need to tell the story. Telling the story. Well, Bolcom is an interesting composer. I think, uh, as I was doing research for today, I think he's a first for a lot of things, or just a kind of a very different type of composer than Mm -hmm. we've seen in the Pulitzer winners. So, I mean, first of all, you can say he's a a West Coaster through and through from Seattle, studied at University of Washington, 
very much a West Coast product, unlike all of our, well, many, many of our winners from the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't trained there, and so it's a very different... Well, as you mentioned, University of Michigan was his yeah. major academic job. Yeah, yeah. Again, not an East Coast composer. No, so kind of very different background. And mm-hmm. then also, he's one of the first, maybe one of the first composers that has a doctorate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he got his DMA in composition from Stanford, also West Coast, in 1964. So he did do some study with Mio and has this Paris background, and that will come into play in a lot mm-hmm. of his music and in, in this piece too. Uh, but it's just a very different background. Yeah. And besides that background, there's this interest. I mean, you mentioned the recording you have with Joan Morris. He has this very strong interest in and background in popular music. Yeah. So in the 1970s, he's part of the Ragtime Revival. That's where we get Graceful Ghost is that he was one of the people who helped revive this the story of american ragtime piano from the early 20th century people like scott joplin mm-hmm. it's kind of a wild for us to think about now but there was a time which people didn't know the entertainer yeah. <laughs> they didn't know scott joplin but there was and he's part of the revival that brought all that music back to light that ultimately gets us like trumanisha mm-hmm. scott joplin's mm-hmm. opera being performed in the bicentennial year of 1976 so you you get this kind of side of his too and because of that interest and because of the collaboration with his wife, reviving also all these old kind of even pre Tin Pan Alley songs. I think of something like After the Ball. Oh, yeah. Great songs of the late of 19th century. Yeah. And he's playing that kind of music around the country. So you get this kind of, I mean, we talk sometimes about a, a composer pianist, but usually when we're talking about a composer pianist, it's a pianist either A, playing their own music or B, playing, you know, I'm playing Liszt, mm-hmm. I'm playing Chopin. Right, right. And he's like, no, I'm playing Cole Porter. It's a very different kind of, of background, and I think that also will play into what we're going to hear today. Definitely, and that certainly plays into his music, which I, it's one of those, it's a very American type of music, I think, mm-hmm. because it's extremely eclectic. You have sections that are, you know, not just this piece, but a lot of his music is like this. It, it's very, uh, goes through lots of styles, mm-hmm. uh, stylistically heterogeneous, to quote some Ives uh, jargon. But you'll have sections of really kind of far out, avant-garde, modernist stuff, and then suddenly you'll have a cadence and mm-hmm. a tonal key, or you hear little bits of uh, popular song or ragtime or rhythms like that. So it's really very eclectic, and I don't know if that's, as I said, I think that's a very American trait. But he really stands out compared to some of our other composers who are almost trying to eschew that type of background they just they want to be seen and respected by european avant-garde or by kind of the high high modernist Mm -hmm. group and he doesn't seem to have that same well but that's where he started it's where he started that's right i mean like a lot of composers of his generation he started composing in a very kind of atonal style with with lectures from boulez yeah i mean that's that's just kind of where the the musical world was yeah um but in my (laughs) Honors it. thesis. Don't you love that I'm pulling this I out? I love this, yeah. <laughs> My 20-year-old self. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but uh, I have this wonderful quote that I wanted to bring in from a time in which Bolcom was working on a radio program and his guest was John Cage. Mm. And so he's talking to John Cage and he's talking to Cage in the interview just about, you know, I don't know where I'm supposed to be going and I'm interested in this and this and this and how do I compose with all these interests? And Cage says, some people divide the world into things that are good and things that are bad. Other people take it all in and let their own organism decide. Ooh. 
which is a very cage. That's statement. a very cage. But I think it goes back to what you're just saying about it's a very American attitude. Yeah. That I don't have to follow this particular trend. I can. Charles E. Ives. Yeah, exactly. Take it all in. And like Ives, it was music that he was intimately familiar with. Mm-hmm. So we talk about Ives' influences, and it's all this music from his childhood that he was involved in. The same thing is happening with William Bolcom. It's all this music that he is personally invested in and has performed that then is in making an impact on his own compositional career. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And of course, this is a piano piece, and Bolcom is an excellent pianist. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should uh, talk about this, start getting into this, and by saying this actually isn't, it's called New Etudes. Why? Because it is new. Oh, <laughs> he has yeah. an original set of etudes. Yeah, this is not the first set of etudes. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the tradition of the etude. This is an old tradition. A lot of composers have written concert etudes. So an etude, of course, is a, a, a piece that you're trying to work out something, some piece of technical work. Practice. or Some practice, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Study. composers in the Romantic period began taking this etude and let's play it on the concert stage to show off this great virtuosic technique that I've developed. So a lot of composers have written piano etudes. So he's in a long line of that. And he wrote a young set when he was a, a young composer that is very atonal, <laughs> boulez like I mean, modernist, it's, it's, right, it's yeah. modernist. It's that type of, uh, of music. And he composed those between 1959 and 1966. Uh, he wrote them for himself. He performed them. They're really thorny technically. Mm. They're also not performed very much yeah. um, because they're in an older style. It's not a style that we associate with William Bolcom. Hmm. So then you get to fast forward to the 1970s. He has a new musical style. And so he starts writing a new set of etudes. So 12 new etudes to replace or continue on with the new musical style that he's doing. And he writes them for a great, great pianist named Paul Jacobs. Yeah, yeah. And he writes nine of them. And then tragedy strikes. (laughs) Yes, and we'll get into that as we go behind the notes. Behind the Notes. So this is, a, I think, a way for him to show the musical styles that he's engaging with at this point in his career, in addition to the technical demands that he's developed as a pianist. Are you a fan of etudes in general? Kind of, I'm thinking of like Chopin etudes and Debussy. Mm-hmm. And I love those. You do? I yeah. do. I love the Chopin. I love the Debussy etudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that they're... They're wonderful. I really, List. I think it's it's interesting to see how you can take, I mean, it's basically a way for a composer to put boxes around their music to say, well, here's some restrictions that I have. I'm going to focus on this one musical technical aspect. And then what they can do with that, I think is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. You sound like you are skeptical I... of the etude. <laughs> that was quite the leading you question counselor. Well here. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's not my favorite thing to listen to because I don't, I'm not attracted to virtuosic music. It's because you're a horn player. I know, <laughs> I know. And all we do is platonic and dominant right. or, yeah, and we, we didn't have valves for a hundred years and all that. <laughs> there are certain, th- I, the Debussy ones are more interesting, I think, mm. to me because I like Debussy's style, but, uh, like list ones, it's just, to me, it's just flash and a lot of. Sometimes you need some good flash. Though, I know, <laughs> I guess you do. I'll give it another chance, but. I will say that these pieces, as we go behind the notes here, have a lot of things to talk about that are not just flash. So yeah, as Andrew mentioned, these were written, it was dedicated to, and probably were going to be played by the pianist Paul Jacob, who, Jacobs, uh, who I have all of Paul Jacobs' 
recordings. He was a favorite of mine. Speaking of Debussy, mm-hmm. he recorded a lot of Debussy's piano music. You know, I have a great Schoenberg, Baird, Webern disc of his stuff. Uh, he did modern music like Zhevsky, mm-hmm. and he played Bolcom, and just a fantastic pianist. He was the uh, pianist for the New York Philharmonic for many years, and is on tons of recordings with Bernstein and Boulez and beyond. So unfortunately, in 1983, he died right when the AIDS crisis mm-hmm. started, uh, started to really come into uh, existence. So uh, he died, and this really shook Bulkham. So he couldn't really write for a while. So then what happened with this? Well, some of them were performed. John Musto actually performed a couple of them. And just happenstance in the audience was Marc-Andre Hamlin, another... Yep amazing, amazing pianist. Oh, yeah. Who comes up to him and says, hey, I'd like to perform the whole set of nine. And he does, and Bolcom is inspired. And because of that performance, he says, I'm going to finish the set. He writes the final three of the etudes and gives them to Marc-Andre Hamelin, who premieres them, the first recording. I mean, this is the way that they kind of enter the repertories through Marc-Andre Hamelin's performances, which are stunning, absolutely yeah. stunning. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, we're at the end of the show, we'll remind you again, but we have a an interview that I, I did with Marc-Andre Hamelin during COVID. And so I uh, did an email back and forth. So we'll, we can post that document and the, the information. But he talks about how it was on his senior recital or his doctoral recital, mm-hmm. I should say. And I, we have the program we'll tell you about later. But uh, it was his doctoral recital that he played the 12 new etudes. So, wow. Welcome to the world. I know. Here. What a doctoral what recital. What a doctoral recital. I know. So... Uh, very, very impressive. Uh, but as you said, this was also, you know, they were written in 77 through 1986. And mm-hmm. that was this time when his style, Bolcom's style, was changing and really becoming eclec- even more eclectic and encompassing lots of different styles and techniques. And they're full of, all of, all these pieces are full of those sort of those things. Yeah, there's an unpublished preface that he wrote for the 12 New Etudes, and he described it this way. He said, my music had become, since 1966, more tonal and even more consciously American, if not always in a political sense, in an effort to avoid the earnest imitations of European style then common to my composer compatriots, myself included. Much of my music became addressed to the special spiritual needs we have right here. So Mm. trying to address kind of what does it mean to be an American in the early 1980s, which is, of course, a fraught time in terms of, uh, of that definition coming off of the Vietnam War, kind of the Reagan revolution. I mean, all this is happening in the United States. So right, the kind of height of kind of Soviet paranoia. So how do you deal with that? How do you write a music that's spiritually telling you what it is to be American in early 1980s? And this is his response. Mm -hmm. So the piece is broken up into four books. He calls four books of three etudes each. And they're a mixture. They go back and forth between French titles and English titles. Mm -hmm. And so we have, for example, the first book is Number one is Fast and Furious. Number two, Recitatif. And then number three is Mirrors. So they go back and forth. Is there a huge break between these books, or do you know that they're books? No. No, no, you don't, <laughs> unless you're looking at the score and you can see. But as in Etudes, each Etude, Bolcom writes something that he wants the pianist. A one sentence def- yeah. dis- description. Yeah. This is what you're doing here. This is what you're doing here. And so what, can you think of some of the ones that are... I don't have the exact terminology. Oh, actually, I do. Well, Fast Furious is sweeping gestures of hands, forearms, the body, freedom of movement. 
and recitative, recitative style, rubato, finger changes for smoothness's sake, smooth passage of line between hands. So I like uh, number seven, premonitions. He says, free falls <laughs> into piano keys, size of tone without banging, inside piano plucking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very clear. This yep. is what you're going to be working on here. And of course, it wouldn't be bulkum if you didn't have a rag. And so number eight is rag in infernal, syncope apocalyptic, and lateral hand jumps and stretches, use of practically no pedal. And so it is pretty infernal for a rag. It's really fast and yeah. you know, kind of crazy sounding. But you have all these different techniques. And some of the, I would say some of the pieces to me were indistinguishable from hardcore modernist like boulez or mm-hmm. like integral serialist pieces and then others are clearly not well, i thought it'd be useful I, I i took just three sections from three different of the etudes i thought we would just kind of play 15 seconds of each just to get the variety of styles yeah. <laughs> that he's throwing in there so here are three examples first one was invention uh, and he says that invention is supposed to be the, the the kind of subtitle is that's working on controlled legato lines with minimal pedal clear delineation of voices and it's serial sounding i mean yeah, it sounds very, very atonal yep. uh, the second is the final one the hymn amour which he says is a contrast of timbres mostly by means of pedal orchestral sonorities and it's this blues progression yeah yeah this, this is just blues progression and then the final one was the the rag infernal right yes, the, the infernal yes. rag uh, and this kind of Quick, 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 but still very the syncopated ragtime feel. Mm-hmm. So, just in those three examples, the variety of style is uh, absolutely remarkable. Not only variety of style, but variety of techniques. And yeah, exactly. this is really kind of you know, it is virtuosic, but not in a not in the list type of way. Mm-hmm. Because you, in this case, you have to do a lot of more more things. Like you said, there's plucking, mm-hmm. there's clusters, uh, there's some free time signatures, uh, some, some like improvisational, some plucking, yeah, all sorts of stuff uh, that goes on. There's also music with key signatures. Mm-hmm. So you do have even tonal type music. So it really spans the gamut of all sorts of exhaustive techniques of the piano. And so I, I was think, wondering what you think, is it, does it relate somehow to Crumb and all of his like the uh, macrocosmos and is it that kind of, does that remind you of it at all? No, there's pl- I think there's a lot of crumb in there, especially, I mean, my <laughs> mentioned my favorite being the, the premonitions, and yeah. the, but the inside plucking and, and yep. that kind of work reminds me a lot of what crumb was doing with the piano. Yeah. So I think a lot of, of similar cheese there. I mean, to me, it's like there's crumb in here. There's just in terms of the, the style that's being borrowed, there's some John Corleano happening mm. at the same kind of time. Um, there's the Ives that we've already mentioned. Yep. I mean, there's so many kind of uh, like traits of American piano music showing up in this piece that uh, absolutely are place it into a time and place. Yeah, yeah. And 
you know, just so like like you said, just so diverse, so many different things that happen here. He even has a, a note in the preface about if you play the pian- play a Busendorfer Imperial Grand, which has apparently extra notes. It does, I has extra notes in the. Oh, the bass note. Yeah. He says provision is made for use of the extra minor sixth of bass notes. Mm-hmm. So, and you can look in the score and see that, yeah, there they are. You can go even further if you want. So, which Mark Under Hamlin used in the course. original recording. Yeah. So, really, just, just a tour de force for the piano and yeah. for stylistically, too. And I'm going to play one more example just because I think it's just fascinating. This is um, a little bit of the beginning of the nocturne. He's interested in contrast and just the control you have to have here. So there's two things to kind of listen for. First is, in terms of the accompaniment, it sounds like a 1950s boogie-woogie song. (laughs) (laughs) But above that, you have this just incredible control that you have the boogie-woogie thing going on left hand and then these intensely sharp pointed notes. I mean, it will kind of jump out at you at the beginning, maybe give you a jump scare just because of the, Mm. the contrast that he's got going on. Warned you, and you, you still flinched. You still flinched. But just the amazing control. So it's interesting that in interviews, Wilkham said that he felt like the new etudes were easier than the mm. original set of etudes. I completely disagree. Oh, yeah. The the technical requirements to do some of these things. I mean, beyond just the stylistic, just the control you have to have as a pianist is absolutely remarkable. And to that point, I won't spoil the whole interview, but you can you'll read that Mark Andre Hamelin said. He doesn't understand why there aren't more recordings of this piece. He said, why don't we put the Ligeti etudes away for a while and bring these out instead? And then I, I wanted to say, well, these are really hard. <laughs> really hard. <laughs> Maybe yeah. if you're Mark Andre Hamlin, you're like, for him, Ligeti or Bolcom, whatever, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> not a problem, but for most people, it's pretty challenging. Did, did I remember correctly that you said you played one I played of a, couple of a couple of them, okay. yeah. I played the Butterflies, Hummingbirds, which is the, tri- the oh, tremolo yeah. one, which is... So hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they are. It's one of those things that, as a young pianist, I was like, I should play these. And then I started messing around with them. I was like, uh, maybe <laughs> not. I don't have the time to dedicate. I think I'll go be a musicologist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we should hear what the critics had to say about these etudes. Hit or miss? All right, so in the New York Times, we always start to see what the New York Times said. Um, this was a uh, review by Alan Cozen, and he says that they are in the tradition of the genre, require a combination of muscularity and musicality. Mm. They are composed in a language that brings together elements of tonality and dense chromaticism, and several are blatantly picturesque. Each of the dozen, whether rumbling and ostentatiously virtuosic or more introspective, make daunting demands on the pianist's agility and sense of color. 
That's pretty well said. I yeah. think it definitely does require musicality and muscularity for sure. <laughs> no question. Yeah. Lois Savard recorded uh, in notes. I think because of the Pulitzer, this got a lot of like press. So we can see a lot of uh, people discussing it. Uh, but Lois Savard, another composer, a fellow composer of Volcom, said for the pianist, the pieces for the pianist who possesses the fingers to master the technical difficulties and the imagination to master the musical ones, these 12 new etudes will prove to be rewarding indeed. And this seems to be kind of the, mm. if, if you look at the critical consensus, it's these are really hard, technically and musically, but very satisfying. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's not just flash for the sake of flash, and it's also not just not ugly to listen to and That's hard right. to listen to. And then you also have uh, Robert Carl. Yeah, another composer, composer, Robert Carl. Yeah. And I really like what he had to say because in many ways he kind of placed it in the historical time. Because he said that while he, Bolcom, was hardly an unknown, it must have still come something as a surprise to the music community when William Bolcom was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Music in 1988. Because just like we had said, these, uh, Carl writes, the prize had been the province of mostly Northeastern academic composers. Only recently had composers beyond the post-expressionist style, such as Ellen Zwillick or Stephen Albert, broken through this barrier to claim due recognition for women in post-romantics, respectively. But Bolcom was an even more unlikely case. First of all, he was based in the Midwest. A typical Bolcom piece might begin with an atonal flourish to develop along a hyper-intense expressionist line since they break into a rag, blues, or mix in <laughs> elements of American pop song and conclude with a reference to a classical form such as a fugue or to its opening modernist elements. As such, the only element that was predictable was its unpredictability. And he goes on to say that Bolcom made an entirely viable career as a talent other than composition or teaching, and most significantly, he reveled in the role of the entertainer. Mm. He was unapologetic for his personal persona, that of the song and dance man who traipses from the ivory tower to the music hall without a qualm. And so I think this is, yeah, in many ways, what we've been saying, but points out that when Bolcom won the Pulitzer, it was kind of out of nowhere because people didn't think about him as, oh, he's a serious no. <laughs> Eastern composer, Eastern uh, East Coast composer. He's this person who travels around and sings like Cole Porter and George Gershwin after like, the ball like who, who does that not a right. serious composer right right yeah that that actually encompasses him very well as mm -hmm. a person and we'll see if the uh, jury report does the same here so I, I kind of teased this with you yesterday I wouldn't tell you, you left me hanging I left you hanging here yeah we've got a got a, a cliffhanger here so the jury for the 1988 Pulitzer Prize in Music is an enthusiastic agreement to nominating 12 new etudes for piano by William Bolcom. This is an important new set of works in which the composer has successfully expressed his probing views of today's changing world of music. With roots firmly grounded in the great traditions of the past, Mr. Bolcom has added significant dimensions to today's music world. And then the second, uh, the runner-up, was also unanimous with Gunther Schuller's Concerto for String Quartet and Orchestra. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to Gunther Schuller in, in the next decade. Uh, so who was on this committee? And I, 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 you this were is, asking. This is yeah, what you were teasing me. You I were going to let me know. So Paul Hume, music critic mm -hmm. for radio in Washington, D.C., was the chair. Ellen Tafe Zwillick. Former winner. And Ross Lee Finney, composer, professor emeritus of music, University of Michigan. That's right. Ann Arbor. So now we begin to see someone who may have been pushing, interesting. Yes. Yeah. So you get someone outside that orbit. And of course, 
what they see is outside that orbit. That's really right. fascinating that it was Ross Lee Finney. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and Bulkham, as we, I don't think we've mentioned, but he joins one other Pulitzer Prize winner from the University of Michigan. That's right, Leslie Bassett. Yeah, exactly. So, so two, two Michigan winners. Yes, definitely. Uh, and then the, the recital, the doctor recital we mentioned, is also Mark and Andre Hamlin's first recording, I believe, mm-hmm. and it's the same pieces. Uh, Stefan Volpe's battle piece, and then the new etudes. What a program. Uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> Who needs a Mozart sonata or something? Well, right I mean, I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. Of course I do. <laughs> All right, well... It's that time, so I have I have a feeling. Uh, I think you know where I, I think, stand. Yes, yes, I think. Yeah, hit or miss. This is a huge hit for me. I've always, yeah. always appreciated this set. Um, it's one of the earliest Pulitzer Prize winners that I remember being conscious of. I mean, it's like this. It's frankly, between this and the Davidovsky synchronisms, which mm-hmm. I also played, yeah. these are the two piano works that have won. This is the only solo piano work to win, but those are only two real piano works. So that was my kind of entry into the idea of the Pulitzer Prize. So it's been in the back of my head for a long time. I've always loved these. So mm-hmm. the real question is, how, how about our resident <laughs> horn player? How do they feel? How do you feel about these pieces? Well, despite my reservations about etudes in general and, and all of their kind of vapid uh, virtuosity in a lot of cases, uh, I would say these are a hit for me because of the musicality, because mm-hmm. of the, the diverse styles mm-hmm. and... There were parts that made me laugh. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were some really moving parts. It just Mm -hmm. kind of spanned all the different emotions that you can get. And to me, it was just an impressive tour de force, like I said earlier, about all the things that one can do on the piano. Mm -hmm. And so for that, it's very impressive work. And uh, like I said before, I, I, I always think, do the pieces that we talk about want me or make me want to hear more of the composer's mm. music and the answer is definitely yes yeah. uh, that i i keep exploring bulkham and little dribs and drabs and I, i've always seemed to like what i've heard well, i'm glad you bring up the the moving because i've always thought that the versla silence which is number 10 yeah um is in many ways like a requiem for paul jacobs and yeah that's right that movement is just oh. so powerful and so moving um, that etude and it you know, sits next to hijinks, which is <laughs> this really charming kind of uh, fast, dynamically uh, contrasting movement. So uh, you do get the wild swings, but it is important to know that um, there's a lot of heart in these pieces. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about William Bolcom. You can also look for our bonus episode featuring our interview with William Bolcom and an interview uh, which will be in written form with Mark andre Hamlin. So you get to really do a deep dive about this piece. Also follow us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. And be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help people find the show. Uh, we want to Thank the anonymous reviewer, NYC Pent, who wrote, quote, Since I was precociously interested 12-year-old, I've been following the music Pulitzers for decades. So this podcast caught my attention. The Pulitzer winners year by year are sometimes worthy, sometimes questionable, and sometimes just goofy. One questions if works of art should be awarded prizes at all, 
but the hosts of this podcast have a good time evaluating the history, discovering both the gems and the duds. So thanks for that review, and we look forward to reading more. Finally, join us next episode when we discuss the last winner of the 1980s, Roger Reynolds, for Whispers Out of Time. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.